Father, this is your word written by your Holy Spirit. He is the author, the illuminator, and now the enabler of your servant. We pray that he might have full freedom to do whatever he pleases to do, that he might illuminate the word of God to us and then open the heart of our understanding so that we might receive the word and then through his enablement to respond, to obey whatever you would say to us. We pray that the end of result of our time together might be one where we all come and adore him, fall before him on bended knee to worship him as Emmanuel, God with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, our overall topic for these two messages that I have been pleased to give here at Calvary is the saving grip of the Savior. Our focus is on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The overall topic, Christmas, the saving grip of the Savior. Focus, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Last time, in part one of our message, in order to put it in the context of the season, I renamed the message, Emmanuel in his grip. Emmanuel in his grip. At that time, we focused primarily on the person of Emmanuel, who he is. But our message is actually divided into two parts, not only looking at the person of Emmanuel, but the purpose for the coming of Emmanuel as well. Last time, we focused then on the person and the fact that the little baby born in a manger was none other than God himself. And beloved, please, don't just let that bypass you. He was God himself. We discussed the meaning and method of the incarnation. And briefly, in summary, we said that the meaning of the incarnation is that the eternal Son of God, God himself, united himself with the human nature created by the Holy Spirit within the womb of Mary. And as the eternally existent God, he added to his divine person a human nature without diminishing his deity or without deifying his humanity. The method of his incarnation was the virgin birth. And as I mentioned last time, in fact, I emphasize it, we must understand that Jesus' birth or delivery itself was in no way miraculous. He was born, that is, delivered in the same way as any other firstborn. The miracle and the mystery lie with his conception. His human nature was miraculously and mysteriously formed within the Virgin Mary by the creative power of the Holy Spirit, so that at both the time of his conception and the time of his actual birth, Mary remained a virgin. Jesus Christ is a true man because he was born of a woman. But Jesus Christ is also true God because that which was, con which was conceived in her was of the Holy Spirit. Today, we want to look at the significance of the incarnation of God the Son. In other words, what Jesus did through the event of the incarnation itself. And so, Another appropriate subtitle to the message could be Christmas, the saving grip of Emmanuel. 
Christmas, the saving grip of Emmanuel. Now, having established the fact that the baby in the crib was Emmanuel, God of very God, we want to see from the word of God, his word, why he did what he did when he became man. Why did he become man? Why did he plan to have Christmas? What was it that he had to do before he went to the cross? So then, the last time, the person of Emmanuel today, the purpose for his coming, what he did as Emmanuel. We want to look at the classic passage that we've looked at before and that was read this morning. Philippians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to it because I want these passages to burn in your soul this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. We'll have it on the screen, but please open your Bibles and mark it if you must. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. This is what I call the Christmas spirit. This is the Christmas spirit, having the same attitude, the same disposition, the same frame of mind as Jesus Christ when he came to earth. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, the King James Version says, of no reputation, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? What a wonderful passage of scripture this is. This is a passage, as I mentioned before, that the old English preachers would say is pregnant with meaning. This morning, I want to see if I could deliver these meanings to you. Now, actually, it would take a month or more of message to begin to even scratch the surface of what is taught here, really, in this passage. But of course, as you know, I don't have a month. This is one of the richest pieces of the honeycomb of God's word you can find anywhere in his word. Unfortunately, as I said, I can only let you get a whiff of its aroma and not give you a big bite of it. I leave that for you to do on your own. I want to tell you, though, that this passage here and the truth in it is better than any candy cane you can suck on this coming Christmas. This is sweet stuff here. Three very important facts then are revealed here concerning Jesus coming into the world. The first is the vital reckoning or accounting he had to make before coming into the world. The vital reckoning or accounting he had to make before coming into the world. Notice the text very carefully. Verse 6 says, Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Please note the last phrase here. Something to be grasped. That's the English Standard Version. The New American Standard says, something to be held on to. 
The New Living, the New Living Translation says, something to cling to. The King James Version has an odd saying. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. All of these phrases translate one word that we're going to look at. I'm going to dwell on it as we go through the passage, but I just want to point it out at this time. This verse, though, overall teaches that Jesus was God before he was born as a man. And he knew it. He knew that he was God. He did not have to reach out after deity so as to acquire it, nor to hold on to it as something he could lose. He was God, and that was that. He did not have to grasp or lay hold of deity. Why? Because deity was already in his grasp. Deity had already laid a hold of him. And so we could say deity laid hold of him. He was in the grip of deity. Emmanuel was in the grip of deity before he became a man. In Hebrews chapter 1, the Holy Spirit says he was the effulgence of God's glory. That means that he was the exact essence of the God of glory, the exact essence of his person. What God is, so is Jesus. Yet in this position, engulfed in this glory, Jesus Christ viewed the sad condition of mankind, you and me, in our sin. And he determined that he alone could save us, but only if he became one of us, if he became man himself. He considered then the suffering of mankind. Then he looked at the in, un, uninterrupted bliss that he enjoyed. And he had to weigh this uninterrupted bliss in glory to become man, to become a sin bearer for the whole world. Paul tells us that Jesus made a choice. He made a decision and he was fully aware of the consequences. Like many of you are doing here right now, Jesus actually planned for Christmas. He planned for the coming of Christmas. But his plans were quite different than the plans you and I are making to celebrate that coming. But Jesus himself planned for Christmas. Look at verse 7, because it describes the result of this accounting. Our translation says, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. Now, this is in contrast to what he was giving up. In other words, compared to what he was in glory, becoming a man made him nothing in comparison. That's perhaps why on the cross he cried out, I am a worm and no man. The King James Version says he emptied himself. I believe the New Living Translation more actually reflects the meaning when it says he gave up his divine prerogatives. In other words, he shed his outward manifestation of his deity. He did not shed his deity, only the outward expressions of it. He valued the souls of men above his own personal divine glory opposition outwardly. He laid all of the outward manifestations of this in order that he might qualify to become our redeemer. That's how he prepared for Christmas. Friends, listen. No greater accounting or reckoning has ever been made than this. 
Thanks be unto God for his indescribable gift. He made a decision to lay hold of man, but first he had to give up, lay, let loose the outward manifestation of his deity. Now this reflects the tremendous stoop that he had to take in order to become our redeemer. Notice what the text says again. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. This is an incomprehensible statement, I say again. An incomprehensible concept. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He took upon himself human flesh, apart from its sinfulness. Notice carefully what the text says. It does not say he took on the role of a servant. He didn't just take on what a servant does. He took on the nature of a servant. Now, the word servant here is more actually translated a bond slave, a bond slave. In this case, it's a person who willingly gave himself up to the total and absolute will and control of his master. This speaks of the voluntary act of him becoming a man. But here's the point. Listen carefully. This is what Christmas is all about. Jesus became a bond slave by nature, not simply by role, but by nature. Jesus became a bond slave by nature. He did so in order to feel and experience all that a human slave can ever feel or experience, a slave to sin. Jesus Christ, listen carefully, friends, did not merely sympathize with us as humans, but he empathized with us as humans. That's the real sense of the word. He empathized with us. Now, I don't know how many of you follow the U.S. in political news, but if you do, you will know that Hillary Clinton came under fire recently because she made a speech insisting that Americans should empathize with their enemies. She was saying that Americans must try to feel and experience the same things the Al-Qaeda people and the ISIS people were feeling and experiencing when they were cutting off the heads of the enemies. That's what she said. She suggested that rather than killing them when they kill their enemies, we should try to understand why they did what they did and feel what they felt. Americans, she said, should try to understand what they're doing and why they do it. Then she said, this is how peace would come about. That was an amazing statement for this woman. Some say that her use of this word, empathize, could possibly cause her to lose being nominated as a candidate for the presidency because she used this word, empathize. But you know something? This is a good word when we look at what Jesus Christ did on the first Christmas. This is a good word for what is being expressed here about Jesus Christ and what he did when he was incarnated. Let's look at this word. Let me show you what, how Webster's defined the word empathy. Webster says, empathy is the imaginative projection of a subjective state into an object so that the object appears to be infused with it. Do you get it? 
Notice, it's into an object. It's not upon an object, but it's into an object. Notice also, it's infused with it. This goes beyond feelings. It means the taking of the condition of the person we are empathizing with to be our own. Literally, as the Greek scholar William Barclay puts it when he talks about Jesus Christ as our sympathetic high priest, he says the word really means to get into the skin of another being. Get into the skin. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ had to do on that first Christmas. That's what he planned to do, to get into the skin of the sinner, to get into the skin of us as human beings. And then Webster goes on, he says something else. He says it's the action of understanding, being aware of, being sensitive to, and vicariously experiencing the feelings, thoughts, and experiencing of either the past or present without having the feelings, thoughts, and experience fully communicated in an objective, explicit manner. Now, that might be a little involved, but it's simply saying, you know, he talks about the vicarious death of Jesus Christ for us. It simply means Jesus died for us, but more than that, he died as us. He died as a human being for us as human beings. This simply means then that all of the experiences are objectified in the person. That's empathy. This is what it means when it says that Jesus took the very nature of a bond slave. He took the nature of a slave to sin. You and me. He came down into the whole of a sinful world and tabernacled himself in our flesh without taking on our sin so that he could die for our sin. Here's, an, here's a humorous illustration of what it means to empathize with a person. Take a look at it. So what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy. Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, I'm down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is... Ooh, it's bad, uh-huh. Uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time. Because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb. 
but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. <laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. What makes something better is connection. That's what Jesus did on Christmas Day, the first Christmas Day. He connected with a sinful humanity by becoming a human himself. But note something else here now. He became a man. He did not become an angel. So please, don't tell me that when you die, you want to be an angel. All right? When Jesus came to earth as Emmanuel, he came as a man, not an angel. Again, as I mentioned last time, this puts an end to the lie taught by some that Jesus was the spiritual brother of Lucifer, another angel. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 16 says this, For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. That's what empathy is all about. Jesus could only sympathize with us by becoming one of us. That's why we could go to him with any kind of problems, and he'll connect with us. He just won't talk to us and leave us on our own. He will connect with us, and he will take that upon himself. In order that he might make an atonement for the sins of the people. Now, I emphasized this last time. Christmas is not so much that Jesus came as a baby, but rather that God came as a man. Please don't forget that. I believe that mighty movements must have preceded the appearance of the Son of God when he came to earth on that first Christmas. Scriptures give but little direct information about this, but it does push aside the curtain of this mystery just a little for us in Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to it beginning at verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, that's Christmas, he said, notice now, this is what he said when he came on Christmas. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Notice this. But a body you prepared for me. Where was that body prepared? In the womb of the Virgin Mary. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do the will of God. Do you notice that? Christmas is the will of God. That is what happened on Christmas. That's the will of God. And then the incomprehensible came to pass. The sun forsook the splendor of heaven and became an earthling like us, leaving eternity, 
the creator entered into time as the created being himself. That's Christmas, my friends. The eternal word became a human being. He laid aside his world-embracing power as co-ruler within the Godhead. And we must never forget this fact, beloved. He never, not even for a moment, gave up his deity. He emptied himself of the outward expression of his divine glory and his governmental position within the Godhead, but not his nature or his divine attributes. He is God, a very God, even as he is man, a very man. Now, let me give you a heavy word today. The theological word to describe this mysterious, awesome reality of the human nature and the divine nature being in one person, Emmanuel, is hypostatic union. Did you get that? Hypostatic union. Now, I remember I said to you many times before, if you don't learn anything from me, one new thing that you didn't know before you come into the service, then I've missed my objective for preaching because we want you to grow, not to stay stagnant, right? And you can only grow if you learn new things. Here's a new word for many of you, hypostatic. Now, you should have heard that before. Chris Godwright has named his group, at least it was, hypostatic union. That's because he learned it in Talios Theological Institute. But that's the word because to express how two natures, human and divine, could exist in one person without that person being a schizophrenic is the word, schizophrenic. This is the word. This is the mean hypostatic union, the mystery of how the divine and the human in one person without mixing. His humanity was not deified. His deity was not humanized. They were separate. But yet, the end product was the God-man, fully God, fully man. That's Emmanuel. My friends, this is what Christmas is all about. This union of the divine with the human. Please don't lose sight of that fact and you celebrate Christmas, or else your celebration will be a farce. But notice something else now. The death he had to die, mentioned in verse 8, says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Note the parallelism here in this text. As God, he humbled himself by becoming man. As man, he humbled himself by becoming a slave. As a slave, he further humbled himself by dying on the cross. In other words, each step he took was one of self-abasement and humiliation, one that always was, that was looking out for the, be the best of us as human beings. And so I say to you again, as you view the manger scene this Christmas, Remember that Jesus had the privilege and power to choose the place of his birth. He could have been born in a palace, but he chose a stable. He could have been born a king, but he chose to become a common laborer. He could have been chosen to die, he could have chosen to die a respectable death, an easy death, but he chose the cross, the most degrading, 
ignominious, dishonoring, scandalous form of death known at that time. That's why the text says, notice it says, even the death of the cross. Grammatically, this is the point of emphasis by contrast. Not just any death, but the death of the cross. Even the death of the cross. Nothing could be worse. Nothing could be more degrading or more demeaning. But Jesus, as Emmanuel, chose it nonetheless. But friends, even the death of the cross was not the final level of degradation. Final humiliation or suffering for our Savior. No. The most awful point of Jesus' pain, suffering, and humiliation was was when he bore the full load of God's judgment for your, your sin and for my sin. When he became our sin offering. When he expressed that awful darkness of separation from his father the way he felt at the time. It's the time when he who knew no sin was made a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's the time when he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why the one who claimed to be the son of God exclaimed, Why have you forsaken me? My God, my God. That was the most humiliating time for Jesus Christ. My friends, at that time, there was no one who was more lonelier than Jesus Christ. And he cried out on the cross, Why have you forsaken me? He felt abandoned by his God. He suffered death that we might experience life abundantly. He became poor that we might become rich. He, the Son of God, became the Son of Man that we, the sons of men, might become the sons of God. Friends, that's what Christmas is all about. Sometimes it is said that the most degrading thing to happen to Christ was that he became a man. That is not so. The Bible does not support this idea whatsoever. This text does not bear this out. As I said, the most humiliating thing mentioned here is not his incarnation when he became man, but his death on the cross, where he was punished as a sinner, although he was a sinless one. Consider this also. If the incarnation was Christ's greatest humiliation when he became a man, would he not have renounced that humanity after he was raised from the dead? But he didn't. He is now a glorified man sitting at the right hand of God the Father. If becoming a human being was his greatest humiliation, he would have left his body here on earth. But he didn't. That body was renewed, transformed, and is now seated at God's right hand. The scripture says that the only glorified man in heaven is Jesus Christ. He actually took humanity back into heaven with him. And as a result, we have the impossible reality that there is something within the divine Godhead today that was not there 2,000 years ago as far as our own logic is concerned. A bodily glorified man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was once born in a manger in Bethlehem, Judea, is now seated in glory at the right hand of his father. This too, I say, is a mystery. And frankly, I'm still struggling with this concept. How could this be? 
How could God give us something we cannot explain and say that we must believe it? I'm struggling with that. That's why I cry out all the time. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. It defies all logic, except the logic we call theologic. You see, God's logic accepts all of this. A man could be God. Human logic cannot. Man is man. God is God. But when we come to theologic, man is God. And God is man in the person of Jesus Christ. But all of this is to say that in order to become our sin bearer, he had to first become a man. And to become a man, he had to be born as a baby. That's why we must not only put Christ back into Christmas, as I said before, but we must also put sin into Christmas. Because if it were not for sinners like you and me, there would be no need for Christmas. There would be no need for a Savior like Emmanuel, God with us. How sad it would be then if any of us would experience another Christmas and even celebrate it with gusto and remain in our sin. What a waste of time. What a show of absolute disregard for or ignorance of the true meaning of Christmas and the Incarnation. This reflects the final emphasis, yes, final, I would like to make this morning concerning the Incarnation. And that is the significance of the Incarnation to mankind, to you and to me. Why did Christ have to come to earth? Why did God originate Christmas? Why was the incarnation necessary? Now you said, Vasily, you've answered that again and again in this message. Yes, but I want to emphasize and underline something so you won't forget it. There are several reasons, and I've mentioned some of them already. And time does not allow, I like to say that, time does not allow me to go through all of them. So I will focus only on one that reflects and substantiates the title of my message. Emmanuel, in his grip. You know, we like to use that phrase. Some of you even sign your name, in his grip. I think it originated with um, Swindoll, right, Swindoll. It originated with Swindoll signing his name, in his grip. Emmanuel, in his grip. Or, as I like to put it today, Christmas, the saving grip of Emmanuel. Now, to see what I'm talking about, let's go back, or rather, let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, where Paul explains the purpose for the incarnation. This is what he says. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. Notice that? God and man, the man Christ Jesus. One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. In other words, the incarnation was the bridge to bridge the chasm between a sinful mankind and a holy God. Christ Jesus had to become a man to stand in the gap between God and us. This was a gap caused by our sin. Isaiah 59 leaves us no doubt about this. It says, and I quote, Your iniquities or sins have separated you from your God. That was one of the reasons for Christmas, to bridge the gap between your sinfulness as a human being and a holy God. Only way that God and man could be brought together was by the God-man, Jesus Christ. Christmas and the incarnation, therefore, was the securing of man's side of the bridge between heaven and earth. 
between a holy God and a sinful man. This is the momentous event that is emphasized in Hebrews chapter 2 that we read already, verses 16 and 7. Let's take another look at this passage for the first time. Let's take another look at Hebrews chapter 2 for the first time. Verse 16 says, For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to make like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. The King James Version translates verse 16 this way, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed or nature of Abraham. The word he helps and he took on are translated from the same Greek word, which may literally be translated to lay hold of or to take hold of or to grasp. If we combine the translations, we get a better idea of what is being said in this verse. And this is the truth that is emphasized. Listen carefully. Christ does not help or lay hold of the angels, but he lay, but he helps or lay hold of the descendants of Abraham, that is, human beings. Now, how does he do this? How does he lay hold of human beings? By not taking or laying hold of the nature of angels, but rather by taking or laying hold of the nature of human beings. Now, why did Jesus do this? That he might make atonement for the sins of the people. That's the reason for the season. Jesus becoming a man so that he could die for us, to pay the penalty for our sin. I believe that the best illustration, the best biblical illustration of what this means with regards to man's salvation is seen in Matthew chapter 14, verse 31, where the same word is used in a different setting. You remember the story? The disciples are on the Sea of Galilee, a great storm has come. Jesus comes to them walking in a boat. Peter sees Jesus, and Peter says, Lord, I want to come. You remember that? And Jesus says, come on, right? You remember? Now, I want you to show you just a short piece of video that depicts this, that shows us what it means when it says Jesus laid hold of our nature. Can we have that video, please? Trust is with
But you see, Jesus reaches out and he takes a hold of Peter. Matthew 14 says, the text says that immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. That's what Jesus did on the first Christmas. He reached out to a lost humanity and he laid a hold of him. He grasped him. In other words, the Holy Spirit is saying that Christ as God reached out and gripped or took hold of human nature in order to save us from our sin. That's what the incarnation was and is. That's what Christmas is meant to commemorate and celebrate. The Son of God reaching out to grab us by becoming a man himself to save us from going to hell. Friends, that's the reason for the season. That's the purpose of the present, the first Christmas present, Jesus Christ. So I say to you, Christmas is a saving grip of the Savior. Christmas tells us that we are in Emmanuel's grip. That's Christmas. We are in Emmanuel's grip. Christmas is meant to demonstrate to us the greatness of God, the wisdom of God, and perhaps above all else, the love of God. Christmas, I say to you again, was God's means of laying hold of man. It was the saving grip of the Savior. However, as paradoxically as it may seem, in order for the saving grip to be realized in your life, you must reach out and by faith what you, and, but to him. And what you will discover is that Jesus Christ is in fact reaching out to you. And really, once he grasps you, you don't, know, you don't have to worry about anything. He, <coughs> he lays a hold of you. Remember this, friends. Jesus' arms are not short, so it cannot save. Yours is, you cannot save yourself. Yours are short, but not his. You cannot reach him by your own efforts. But his arms are not shortened so that they cannot save. He can reach you, and he's reaching out to you right now. You know what he wants to do? He wants to connect with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. So as I show this final video today, I want you to think about seriously, if you haven't done it yet, to allow Jesus Christ to grasp you, to lay a hold of you. All you have to do is, by faith, put out your hands. He'll grasp yours before you grasp his. Watch this video. talks about establishing a relationship, and I trust that you might do that today.
So I invite you this morning to take hold of the first Christmas gift yourself. You must personally reach out to Jesus Christ by receiving him as your Savior. In other words, you have to do by faith what Jesus did in actuality when he was born in the manger. Reach out to lay hold of him. When you do, you'll find yourself in his grip. I invite you to do that right now as we close in prayer. Please bow with me. If you have never yet received the first Christmas gift, Jesus Christ is yours. Simply acknowledge that you are a sinner, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that he was given as God's gift to you to be your Savior by dying on the cross for your sin, and that God showed his approval of his sacrifice for you by raising him from the dead. For those of you who are believers, will you commit yourself to making a genuine effort to tell at least one person why Christ became a man this Christmas? Why Christmas was originated by God? Will you commit yourself to witnessing to someone this Christmas by telling them why Jesus came to earth on that first Christmas so long ago? Make that commitment now and celebrate Christmas in a way that honors God. And all of God's people said, Amen.